And thanks for joining us for another Blunt Business on CannabisRadio.com. My next guest's current passion is the development of evidence-based labeling and packaging standards for the regulated cannabis industry. And he founded the Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, the first national physicians association dedicated to the legalization and effective regulation of cannabis in the United States. I'm here with the founder, past president, current board member for the Doctors of Cannabis Regulation. For this point, we'll go ahead and refer to him as DFCR. I'm here with Dr. David Nathan. Dr. David, thank you for being on. And thank you so much for having me. So let's go to get into the DFCR. For those who might not be familiar, these, you serve as the global voice for physicians and other health professionals to advance the legalization and science-based regulation of cannabis. Through education and advocacy efforts, you leverage the influence and expertise of the medical community to realize legislative changes necessary to promote improve public health, social justice, and consumer protections. I really was appreciative of the fact that there is an organization, a collective of doctors, and I really wanted to find out just the far expanse of the medical professions that are on. Anything you can tell me about, because for cannabis to be legitimized, we want, we can't, we just can't have patients out there that are trying to give the plight. We also want to make sure that the caregivers can also attest to the benefits of cannabis. Who can you tell me about the collective of medical professionals that make up the DFCR? Well, so uh, to to just give a word of background to kind of put it all in context, I, I've been a psychiatrist for 25 years and I have treated a whole range of conditions, not just substance use issues. Uh, and throughout my medical education, I come to realize that the drug war itself was not necessarily helping my patients. So the drug war generally didn't seem particularly effective. And as I started to learn more about it, I realized some of the harm that it would do. And the one drug in particular that was really a bee in my bonnet uh, had to do with the criminalization of cannabis. And the reason is that to any first year medical student who learns about the basics of, of, of the mechanism of cannabis and gets any time with patients who have tried one uh, particular recreational uh, or adult use drug versus another, you, you quickly realize that the, the criminalization of cannabis was far more damaging even to public health than, than the drug itself was. So, you know, some people uh, don't tolerate cannabis and it's, it, it can be uh, risky for certain populations, but at the same time, the, the great majority of, of adults don't have a problem with it when they try it. Uh, the only problem that my patients tended to run into, uh, again, with exceptions, the only problem was the fact that they could get arrested for it. And so I had numerous patients whose lives had been wrecked by an arrest for cannabis and very few um, whose lives had been wrecked by the drug itself. And that disparity really bothered me until I finally had heard one case too many of somebody who had lost a scholarship because they had a cannabis arrest and rather than pursuing a promising career in some professional field, couldn't go to college. And when that happened, I finally said I'd had enough. I wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal. I then was asked, I, I thought I was just adding my name to the many physicians who have talked about this issue, uh, but in fact found out that I was way out in front. Um, I wasn't alone. And so in 2014, when the New Jersey ACLU asked me to join their state legalization campaign, I started looking for an organization uh, like DFCR that could support me because even though my colleagues said that they thought that cannabis should be legal, nobody was willing to put their name to that because they were afraid of the medical establishment. And so that- Somebody had to come in and go ahead and, first of all, establish themselves as an advocate and, and not, and, you know, take the risk head on. And not only that, if you couldn't have it, if it was an organization that was already in existence, you did it yourself. Exactly. And I can remember thinking, well, well there's got to be some group of doctors out there that will support me in finding like-minded physicians. And there was none. And so it was the lack of existence of DFCR that made me realize how valuable the organization could be. And now, six, seven years after our launch, seven going on eight years, 
we realize what a large space space this filled. And of course, we attracted uh, physicians of great prominence. Uh, I like to say that there's somebody in DFCR who is either your teacher as a uh, medical student uh, or somebody who's researched you uh, read and uh, value. And so by having prominent physicians go on record and say that the regulation of cannabis is much better than its prohibition, uh, that we could make change. And indeed, I think we've really done that. We've come a long way. You know, my home state of New Jersey uh, flipped several years ago. And, uh, uh, and so now we have a pretty good regulated system here just as is popping up all around the country in many states. And they've moved along in the adult use the last couple of years. When it comes to doctors, there's such high regard as opposed to anybody that might be other professionals in the science or politics or in other spaces when it comes to the, advocate, the advocacy of cannabis. And with doctors, the pressures from insurance companies, from drug companies, from the fellow scholars that brought you in, you know, medical researchers. I just imagine there's so much blowback that you can get and that you might have gotten from all of this. That's why it's just so important to go and see doctors being warriors for this plant to get people out there to realize and legitimize and confirm and verify that this is a safe alternative. It works if it's properly diagnosed and you know whatever affliction or anomaly is diagnosed and that you can have the cannabis market in every state roll out medical which is always the, which always was the right thing where you just you just don't go right into it medical and then transfer into adult use so even though people might want to have the full-fledged legalization right across the board i always thought when we went from medical to adult use in every market every state has been the right way to go because the adoption comes in and then you have an educated public that might have medical marijuana cards and they can move forward into the dispensaries because they'll have a more of an awareness of how to go and use cannabis on a regular basis how they want to use it and the best way to do it in moderation i don't disagree i think that the uh success of dfcr has been not so much in the uh, the argument to be made for the affirmative use of cannabis for a variety of disorders. And at this point, uh, maybe we'll talk about this later, but the chain, the, the rescheduling of cannabis from schedule one to schedule three is, is now being proposed, uh, reflects the fact that there is now a growing appreciation about it. But I do want to bring that up in a little bit. I, I really do want to bring up, I want to hold, I want a table just because I want to get to the part of the symbol itself, but I do want to get to that. We were going to get to that. I want to just tease everybody. We're going to talk about that later on the program. I appreciate it though, but let me get into where we are in terms of the awareness and then what's been going on right now, where you've been looking to have various markets or just the cannabis industry in general, adopt a universal international intoxicating cannabinoid product symbol or IICPS. So recently you sent a letter uh, sent on behalf of 21 prominent public health, social justice, and patient advocacy groups to compel cannabis policymakers and regulators from around the U.S. and around the world to adopt this symbol for all cannabis product packaging. And we've heard from various companies and groups that have been trying to do that from the cultivation side, from the hemp side, obviously. We always hear about old certified seals or you know other distinctions of quality, things like that. What can you tell me about the characteristics behind the IICPS? Sure. So the basic principle under which I was operating when, when thinking about cannabis labeling is that labeling itself is the final common pathway of a number of regulatory processes, including testing of products and, uh, um, you know, testing for purity, testing for, uh, concentration and, um, uh, and hang on there is something yeah yeah um right so cannabis labeling is the point of convergence of several regulatory processes processes including testing and tracking and public safety and consumer protection and there are many aspects to cannabis labeling there's the information that you want to provide there are cautions that you want to give people who are getting cannabis and may uh, need to know their level of risk of some kind of adverse effect. But 
fundamentally and before anything else, you want to know what the product is that's in front of you. And if it contains cannabis that can be intoxicating, uh, then it needs to have something distinctive to distinguish that package from all others. And so a cannabis product symbol is not a new idea. It's being used in many different states. And in the different states, they have come up with what can only be described as ironically named universal symbols, because a lot of these states come up with their own symbol and then they think that that's going to be used everywhere, even though their state name may be in the symbol itself. Well, for people who know anything about the, the, the symbology, uh, they'll know that uh, symbols really need to communicate something quickly, effectively, and with the minimum of complication possible. So how do you communicate some degree of caution with cannabis products? Well, think about what is the most uh, fundamentally well understood uh, symbol for cannabis, that's the cannabis leaf. It's pretty universally recognized. And in fact, in the world of drug policy, it's somewhat unique in having a single symbol to represent all forms of consumption and all of that. You don't really have that for tobacco because most people probably couldn't tell you what a tobacco leaf looks like and not everybody smokes cigarettes. Uh, you can't have it exactly as easily for alcohol because alcohol is a liquid. So you'd have to be showing some kind of vessel but that can vary from culture to culture. When it comes to cannabis, if you see a cannabis leaf, you understand that it has to do with the cannabis plant. So you take that symbol and you combine it with the notion of caution. Well, how do you know to exercise caution when you're walking across a floor that might be wet? It's because you see a black bordered yellow triangle with somebody slipping inside of that triangle. And that's what tells you that you need to be careful. We have that for uh, high voltage. You'll see a yellow triangle with a, with a lightning bolt inside. People understand that means electricity. And if you have a black bordered yellow triangle with a black cannabis symbol, which is pretty much the description of the international intoxicating cannabinoid product symbol that we came up with, when you see that, you know that you are seeing a cannabis product and it's something that requires some degree of caution. It seems simple enough, it seems logical enough, but really the IICPS that was developed by my son and myself as co-designers uh, is the first symbol of its kind. Uh, it actually has now been adopted in four states and New York, which we had been pushing very hard to have adopted, uh, they in their wisdom developed a very complex symbol that includes a black bordered yellow triangle with a cannabis leaf inside, but then they have the ominous letters THC with a big exclamation point inside that symbol. Now, most people don't necessarily, many people don't know what THC is. Uh, that doesn't give them much information. And the exclamation point adds nothing to well, the symbol. Right. And now that and part, that's part of the, the issues you had when it came to, as you're presenting this symbol to various states, one of those was New York State, and that's one of the things, and specifically that you made a point about the various characteristics that need to be. Before we get to the characteristics that some of these states are putting in here that are not necessary, and what the international intoxicating cannabinoid product symbol would apply, what I want to find out are <clears throat> what are the basic parameters. If there, I mean, I know there's a lot of things that would probably need to be required for a product to get that symbol, for that product to get that symbol on the packaging. Is there anything you could tell me in terms of what is absolutely required in terms of compliance, in terms of quality assurance, quality control that you're saying should meet the standard? Is it something that is, you know, something where it's good manufacturing practices qualifies? Or if it's something that's more of what, say, the EPA or FDA approves, is there any particular bar that it has to absolutely reach before that symbol is placed on that packaging? You know, that's a great question. And it, the, the answer may surprise you that it's not really intended to communicate anything about the quality of the product or even whether the product is regulated. It's just information for the public that a product contains cannabis. And so, in fact, in some, uh, some states where cannabis is still prohibited, some 
you you will see people using that symbol or in states where it is legal they'll add that symbol uh because they want to be good uh they want to be uh good agents in the cannabis space and they want to make sure that they're communicating clearly the statements of purity and uh whether a product has met has cleared some bar that can be presented other ways on a cast simply tell people what is there because issue to avoid say an inadvertent consumption by an adult or even by children understand what cannabis is Dr. Nathan? and hopefully parents educate their kids about drugs and, and that includes the cannabis no that I lost you for a second there was the the video was kind of frozen okay. out and your, your the internet was throttling a little bit so I Pretty missed part of here. that answer so yes. um, you went into the point of where you were just getting to the part where it's the distinction of, of saying that the product has cannabis in it. But then you also were just making a point where you just said where the ways that people could go ahead and understand what that symbol means, a better understanding. Can you give me that part one more time, the second half of that answer? Just have to click and come on back. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, you know what I'm going to do? If you don't mind, I'm going to call up the uh, that letter because it really you know it's funny i'm i'm very good at boiling stuff down and and i find you know how to say it with no extra words um and that's a good answer out of it and i could probably move along with it if you want yeah. no that's it. i mean uh and i'm sorry what was the question you just asked oh i was asking about the identity what what is it about the characteristics behind the symbol in terms of what are the absolute parameters that you were yeah. trying to say, but you're saying it wasn't that on the right. contrary. It's just more of a, it's more of just a, a, a definite, a definite stamp that the product has cannabis in it. Like if the, it could be, it's as kosher. It's about as clear as day for anybody to understand. That's right. And, uh, the reason that the symbol, well, I'm not actually sure what question I'm answering. I mean, well, I don't think we have to go more to the weeds on that. Okay. That's where I was just wanting to understand you, what you gave me right there. And actually I get to splice right there. The fact that it was not where it's not something that we're showing us compliance or quality assurance. It's more of just an awareness yeah. more than anything else. It, it's a safety measure. Just as a lot of aspects of labeling, such as statement of THC percentages and CBD percentages and other cannabinoids and terpenes, that is for consumer awareness and uh the more that we do that uh the 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 better that we label products in a way that the public is ready to understand and that doesn't require a learning curve the better and that's why for example i think that cannabis information labels should look very much like a say nutrition facts label or a supplement nutritional supplement label a food label That kind of standard format in black and white is really what people understand. And the the international intoxicating cannabinoid product symbol, which we can just call the IICPS, or we'll just say the symbol, uh, that is created specifically for people to understand. It requires no particular knowledge about cannabis. It it requires, it can transcend ages, cultures, languages level of literacy uh and knowledge of the latin alphabet you don't need to know anything except this is cannabis and exercise and caution should be exercised i appreciate the clarification because it is going to be tough for the compliance standards are going to be set which right now we don't have the universal compliance standards set yet but as we've talked about extensively on this program with consultants with various cannabis owners or people that are just that they, these cannabis control boards across state to state, unless, maybe unless federal oversight comes into play down the line, there's not a universal standard. There's just basically a bare minimum of compliance. And that's one of the things that I understand that we don't have that now, and that's not what this symbol represents, but it's very important. I was just mentioning before, uh, as we were recording off air, it's like where if you're seeing something that's kosher, it's clearly, clearly marked and you're going to see what it is. If it's something when you always hear products that are FDA approved or USDA choice, 
that's the distinction I hear what this symbol represents and what is the point of it. Let's get into the actual fact of getting this implemented across state to state. Now, the IICPS, which is like you said, it's a yellow triangle image of a cannabis leaf on a black border. It's already been adopted so far by Montana, New Jersey, South Dakota, and Vermont. Other states like Alaska are considering it. And before we were on the air, you mentioned a point about how in the state of Montana, that was the first state to go ahead and implement the symbol. And they really helped create the framework as to how to go and approach these other states. That's right. So in the state of Montana, uh, Courtney Cosgrove is their legal counsel for regulatory standards for things like cannabis. And she actually reached out to me long before the IICPS had become an international standard. And she asked, you know, about the symbol and whether it was ready for their use. And the answer was absolutely. The symbol, though it had not yet been approved by ASTM as the world's first cannabis labeling standard, um, it was ready to go. I had been putting, or my organization, Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, had been putting out information about it. And so when Ms. Cosgrove contacted me and said, look, this meets all of the kind of criteria that we as regulators look for. Uh, it was based on existing consensus standards, uh, and they were good to go with it. And so they were really the pioneers. They were the first state to adopt the IICPS, and there have been no complaints so far as I know from them, uh, from their constituents, and the IICPS first took root there. Uh, the other states that have followed suits and the half dozen or so states that I talk to actively who are kind of working behind the scenes to either adopt a symbol for the first time or to actually change their existing state symbol, state symbol to the standard. Um, all of those folks seem to get it about the concept of, of consensus standards. Now, I don't know if your listeners, uh, if you've talked about good manufacturing pra practices, you've probably discussed consensus standards with your folks before. Yeah. And so the educated public would know that we use standards in everyday life for everything from airplanes to zippers and that these standards exist so that we can uh, protect consumers with products that are clearly labeled. You know, my wife and I were just discussing last night this can of seltzer that she had uh, and we were wondering, well, could there be sugar in a can of seltzer. Well, we never see that. Why is that? I actually don't know for a fact, but my guess is that it is probably a consensus standard that requires uh, that a uh, liquid, uh, the, that a drink not have more than a certain percentage of other ingredients in order to call it a seltzer. And right. so for a product to be marketed properly as uh, cannabis with intoxicating cannabinoids such as THC, it should be labeled with a symbol that everybody understands that exists only on those uh, containers and not on any others. We're going to go to commercial break. When we come back, I want to go and ask you about some of the other aspects of what this symbol will represent and talk about some of the states that have not necessarily implemented it yet, but you have approached about using the symbol. And I'm here with the founder, past president, current board member for the Doctors for Cannabis Regulation. Dr. David Nathan here on Blunt Business. We'll be back after a short break. Rolling into some sponsors, but we'll be right back with more Blunt Business. Welcome back. I'm here with Dr. David Nathan, founder, past president, current board member of Doctors for Cannabis Regulation. The website is dfcr.org, dfcr.org. So I want to go moving into one of the areas that's very important to me when it comes to the symbol, which I think is very important, is the aspect of interstate cannabis commerce. Eventually down the line, I mean, I think, honestly, I think we right now, we already have states that are aligned and joined with each other right now, where New York and New Jersey are aligned. Same thing going with, you know, the western seaboard of Oregon, Washington State, California, Nevada, that could all go ahead and work together now if they could as a collective and do regional interstate commerce, which I wish could be done now, would really help the industry if those states would go and be able to go and come together. I know even uh, Governor Newsom in California had talked about that, but it's not until after 
cannabis is legalized federally. But you spoke of marijuana a moment a while back, and they reported that more states are taking steps to authorize interstate cannabis commerce that the, as we have talked about, the International Intoxicating Cannabinoid Product Symbol, IICPS, could help simplify that process. And various laws have been enacted so far generally require cannabis products sold across state lines to follow certain regulatory standards, packaging requirements of the receiving state. And you told Marijuana Moment, quote, it's kind of a no-brainer that if we want to be able to sell cannabis across state lines, there, there has to be consistency in the labeling, at least on a regional level and preferably at a national level. Interstate commerce isn't just about adjacent states. It's also about, hopefully, opening the industry to the entire country. That's why a national standard is so important, even in the absence of federal legalization. Now, that was well said, and I, you, you really consistently you made the point across adjacency and doing it from regional to a national level. I completely agree with all that. But here's the thing. I want to know about the timing because of what this is being done right now to get this symbol to set up in terms of interstate commerce as soon as possible versus just being proactively prepared for federal legalization. I, I think we're really doing both. And uh, the, the concept of regional cooperation is not new. Uh, new England has, in fact, tried to uh, have some collaboration between those uh, geographically tinier states uh, to, so that when products inevitably do cross state borders, whether illegally or illegally, that people in other states will, again, properly recognize cannabis products when they see them. Um, and it's, it's for that reason that DFCR joined with 21 other prominent organizations in the drug policy space, both national and international, to recommend that this particular symbol be used. Um, it's, it's very unusual for drug policy advocates and patients and consumers and doctors and nurses and uh, industry representatives to all agree on something related to regulation. You know, people have their own interests. But one thing that I think is an interest across the board is for proper um, for proper education of the public and safety uh, to prevent unintentional uh, ingestions. And I think both industry and the advocacy space have been very responsible uh, in terms of their desire to prevent cannabis from getting into the hands of uh, yeah, start over. Um, I, I think that industry and advocacy have really joined together to try to help prevent underage use and to prevent cannabis uh, from to prevent accidental to prevent accidental ingestion of cannabis products. Mm -hmm. um, two things I, I so we should talk about. Which organizations have joined in? I, that's easy to mention as an appendage. Let's take just a second to go ahead and begin with that. Yeah, but also uh, we should talk about THC not being the only intoxicating cannabinoid because that no, is... No, that's what I was going to be with the New York question. Great. We, um, but, but I'm going to do that after... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my next question. I'll bring that up about the THC component. Um, so... It's for the purpose of clear communication that DFCR joined with 21 other prominent organizations uh, to make sure that this symbol is used across the board, regionally, nationally, and even internationally. We've, we've been having discussions. And those organizations in that list, they represent trade groups such as the National Cannabis Industry Association mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the American Trade Association for uh, Cannabis and Hemp. Uh, it has included all of the major prominent drug policy groups, including the Drug Policy Alliance and the Marijuana Policy Project, and of course, Normal, uh, DFCR, Clergy for a New Drug Policy. Um, the uh, It's all the major advocacy groups and organizations that we're all very familiar with, and I'm glad that they know that they also, well, they they put support behind and also put their names on that letter to put out there to the, all these states. Let's talk about one particular state in general that has not implemented it yet, but you did reach out to back in January. 
leading up to New York State's full rollout of adult use. The letter was sent to the New York State Cannabis Control Board. We've talked about New York a lot on the program and here on the Grassroots Marketing as well. Now, the reasons uh, for adopting the IICPS was that the OCM's proposed symbol was overly complex. It would require, and these are some of the areas that are some of the normal things that you're dealing with with particular states as to why the symbol is much more streamlined and much more clear than what is being proposed by other states. So in New York State, they wanted to be able to have cannabis packages printed in four colors, black, white, red, and yellow. And the current symbol would most likely need to be updated in the next few years because the term THC, which is included on the symbol, assumes that the intoxicating effects, effects of cannabis are solely based upon THC content. While currently unregulated, there are products containing other cannabinoids that are also intoxicating. Such products will likely merit labeling with the cannabis product symbol in the future, even if those products do not contain THC. So, if you can, please talk to me about these obstacles that were you were having coming across from New York State when it came to the colors, the TAC distinction, and the products about what they were considered THC and which ones are not THC, which ones were intoxicating, which ones were not. Talk with me about these obstacles that you were put through and trying to go ahead and work out with the New York State Cannabis Control Board to get the symbol in place. Sure. I, I, I'm sure I am not the first person on your show to, to make the point that New York has made a lot of unforced errors when it comes to the rollout of their legal cannabis industry, uh, which is really a shame. And, you know, to me, one of the greatest symbolic, if you will, failures of the Office of Cannabis Management and the Cannabis Control Board was the design of a symbol for all their cannabis products that is one and a quarter inches square, which is on a small cannabis package a lot of real estate and they have a a a symbol that could only be described as a parody of design by committee where everybody had something they wanted to see in the symbol and everybody got their way so not only is there kind of a, a knockoff of the iicps within their symbol but there's also a statement of it being 21 plus and there's even a map of new york state on what is supposed to be a safety symbol and anybody who knows uh, anything, if you know Symbology 101, then you know that you should not be diluting the primary purpose of a symbol, which is exactly what the New York State symbol does. And we spoke uh, to Chairwoman Wright one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. She seemed to understand where we were going with coming up with a much simpler, uh, straightforward symbol uh, compared to what they wanted. And when this came up, at a meeting for them after we had sent them a letter that actually was signed by 24 organizations, including some New York state organizations, saying you must use the IICPS in place of this really ornate symbol that is just not practical and doesn't serve its purpose. They took about a minute with zero discussion to propose the whole set of labeling standards, including their boutique symbol. And there was no discussion. There was no reference to the fact that their constituents had opposed what they wanted. And they went ahead and chose their symbol. And now New Yorkers are kind of stuck with it. Though I think it does uh, give us some lessons for other state regulators. One of them is don't reinvent the wheel. If there is a if there is a consensus standard that is out there that is respected that was devised as consensus standards are by a collaboration of the public and private sectors and industry and consumers uh, and watchdog groups if there is a consensus standard like that adopt it and more specifically adopt the IICPS standard because if you don't you're all but guaranteeing that your symbol, such as New York symbol, will be abandoned when the U.S. adopts a national standard. And far worse, if that bespoke symbol that a state designs in-house creates public confusion, it can result in the accidental cannabis ingestion by children and adults who fail to appreciate their misguided originality and as a result can actually be injured by that. So you know, I think that states bear a responsibility to their constituents 
And if they don't follow best practices and if they don't accept and uh, implement consensus standards, then they are going to run into trouble that will really be their fault. And like I said before, to me, that's an unforced error. That should not happen. Well, the other unforced errors we talked about the most part has been social equity, the rollout of that licensing and who's been getting the CAURDs, conditional adult use dispensary licenses. I know the lettering because I've heard talked about it enough on this program to be blue in the face. But anyways, there's a lot more to be said about New York State. But these are the kind of issues we're going across where this is why I thought this discussion, discussion just on the symbol alone was so important because just trying to get something universal and uniform across cannabis, so difficult before we even get to legalization, which is part of the thing that I always was, thought was very indicative that the industry itself needs to understand we need to have some uniformity and across compliance standards. If we can get something where there's a, a standard across social equity, a standard across you know, production and cultivation, the dispensary experiences, just a, there's got to be something where the industry has something uniform and clear and just that everybody is doing their homework. They're getting their work done. They're getting proactive and they're putting aside a framework so that when legalization comes in, it's like, oh, okay, you guys are ready. All right, here you go. Go all the way, all across the country, wherever you want. That's exactly right. I, I, I could not agree. Yeah. We're going to talk more about that now when it comes to more possibilities within the cannabis industry. I'm going to just tease up uh, what we're going to talk about next. After the break, you already prefaced before the start of the show, we were talking about the Biden administration's recommendation to for the DE to reschedule cannabis from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3, and HHS uh, putting that recommendation across the board to make that possible. Now, we've talked about the implications about from the financial end, how Section 280E, the IRS tax code, would be no longer an issue for companies that they were able to go and write off, you know, various expenses. But we've never talked about, and I never had anybody go and talk about the medical implications. And I want to ask you about that. So please hang on after the break. We're going to talk more about that here with Dr. David Nathan, founder, past president, current board member for Doctors for Cannabis Regulation. If you want to learn more, dfcr.org is the website. Take a look at that as we go to commercial break. Rolling into some sponsors, but we'll be right back with more Blunt Business. I'm back with final questions with Dr. David Nathan, founder, past president, current board member for Doctors for Cannabis Regulation. For some of you that were chopping at the bit to talk about the DEA, if they're going to reschedule from cannabis from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3, that's been talked about. Uh, The Hill has reported that moving cannabis designation to Schedule 3 would essentially mean the federal government acknowledges marijuana has some medical uses, but it doesn't change its status as a prohibited substance. And as I mentioned before the break, we've talked about the tax relief that this recommendation would give business owners, but I don't know what the medical consequences would be. What can you tell us about that, doctor? You know, maybe not much because it's not clear that rescheduling from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3, which of course is a step in the right direction. Nobody's Nobody argues that, well, I should say, nobody who understands the science of cannabis would argue that point. The reality- well, Let me ask you this. In pharmacies, I know that they have a point where they're scheduled to narcotics or scheduled to drugs, but then- there's a, a couple of parameters necessary, but a pharmacist, in essence, would be able to prescribe a product. Would that be something possible? Uh, a pharmacist being able to dispense a product. It would, would it being distinguished as cannabis distinguished as Schedule 3, would that make it something, a, a cannabis be a product that a pharmacist could go ahead and have in store and dispense? In theory, the issue is that moving a drug from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3 does not necessarily change the facts on the grounds, and you can move cannabis to Schedule 3, but if the FDA hasn't approved it, it's, it's not at all clear to Doctors for Cannabis Regulation that that's going to change anything. Physicians will still not be allowed to prescribe cannabis, even if it is in a theoretically prescribable category. Uh, it doesn't change the fact that it can be challenging to do research on cannabis because a Schedule One drug can, in fact, be researched, and a Schedule Three drug still requires a lot of hurdles to clear before you can do any research. But you will not start seeing cannabis in pharmacies simply because HHS and the Biden administration have rescheduled cannabis. And in fact, my concern is that the rescheduling by the Biden administration 
is really an effort to do something without doing anything substantial. Because, of course, you know, within, although cannabis legalization is a bipartisan issue, a majority of Republicans, Democrats, and independents all support cannabis legalization. Still, there are many in our government who don't support it, including on the uh, on the left, who you would expect would be more pro-reform. Well, the Biden administration uh, and President Biden was the only one of the Democratic candidates in 2020 who opposed cannabis legalization. And of course, that's why we are where we are now. I think the cannabis probably would have been legalized already uh, at the national scale had uh, there been a, a different Democratic president. But we have the administration we do. Doctors for Cannabis Regulation is working with the White House Office of Drug Control Policy. Uh, it's still clear that President Biden is not comfortable with the relaxing of cannabis laws, much as he made a campaign promise that he was going to decriminalize cannabis. But moving it from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3 does not decriminalize cannabis. Your, your listeners should make no mistake this is not going to change the facts on the ground. It is more of a symbolic move that if it's the first of a number of reforms, that's great. But if this is right. a way to curtail changes or to preempt any further discussion of it, then it's it's actually a negative. And symbolic is exactly the way to describe it. We've talked so much about the the, the, the we have various we have the state sec we have uh, the other act that has been done. You know, we it wasn't. We've had our vice president already draft a bill before she became vice president. You have three Senate Democrats that have been trying to lobby to get, you know, legalization across the board or decriminalization when it comes to Governor uh, Senator Schumer, Wyden, and Booker. They've all tried. We've tried to see entrances into the National Defense Authorization Act of trying to get the Safe Banking Act put into place. Of course, President Biden tried to put the point of exonerating or uh, basically well, pardoning the census of federal cannabis offenders, of which there are not many. It's all symbolic and gesture. But I also think one of the things that even with the schedule one, schedule one and schedule three, where the issue is going to come from is what all the politicians are going to come from. Big Pharma is still spending a lot of money and they're just not going to go ahead and sit on their hands and, you know, without continuing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars, which is three or four or five times more than what the cannabis industry with the help of alcohol and tobacco to put in to get these policymakers to change suit. It still comes down to money, Dr. David, I think, because those drug companies, those pharmaceutical companies are going to want to continue to keep cannabis at bay if they have the money and the resources to do it, they're going to. I, I think that the, the, the big pharma uh, <laughs> is, of course, very big and, and has many uh, players with different interests. I do think that the difficulty here is that you've got a uh, plant and a set of constituent compounds, cannabinoids, and terpenes that cannot be patented. Uh, and so I think that that does, it, at best, it, it makes Big Pharma far less interested uh, in, in the policy that allows people to make their own decisions about whether to use cannabis. Right. And... You know, I'll say that even in the, even if cannabis had a, not a single medical application, this drug shil, still should not be against the law. Because if you know anything about the Controlled Substances Act, you know that Schedule 1 means that a drug meets all three uh, criteria that cannabis doesn't meet. One is that it has no medical, no accepted medical use. That's, that's patently untrue because... There is actually quite good evidence for at least some of the indications that cannabis is used for. For example, in uh, chemotherapy-induced nausea, uh, lack of appetite, insomnia, it helps people with cancer. Uh, it has to have, for a drug to be in Schedule 1, then it has to have a high addiction potential. And while cannabis is, certainly can be habit forming for some people it's not nearly as habit forming as a lot of legal drugs um and the third 
criterion in Schedule One is that there, sh if, if a drug does not have an established safety profile, then and those other two criteria can be met, then then it's Schedule One. Well, the fact is that while we haven't done a lot of research, uh, a lot of good controlled research into the medicinal uses of cannabis because of its Schedule One status, a bit of a catch twenty two. We actually do know a heck of a lot about what cannabis can do in terms of adverse effects, because that is research that our government has funded for decades, trying to show that cannabis really is the horrible drug that its legal status implies. And in all of that research on the harms of cannabis, we have not been able to establish, and in fact, we've established quite to the contrary that cannabis can be safe in the hands of most adults and under a physician's supervision especially uh cannabis can be used safely so its schedule one status was never well founded it, it was really of a more political origin and unfortunately it's going to take some political changes in order to undo the harm that was done when the Controlled Substance Act was published, was created under the under Which the is why I continue to say, if we want to see legalization get ramped up sooner, pay the money. Pay the politicians, give them the lobbying money, put more money into the coffers, and the war chest. That's all you can do. You have to fight back Big Pharma with what they're using. Their weapon is money. They have it, and they're going to continue to use that. Now, eventually, some policymakers are going to go ahead and have the, the, con the consciousness to say, you know what? First of all, for political capital, this is great for us. We need to put this across. It's bipartisan. Let's get it done. I think just about any other administration that comes into play. So in 2024, you know, we can all try to say, are we going to see a, a President Biden running for re-election by the time we get to the end of next year? Are we still going to see him there or is it going to be somebody else? We can still find out. But if it's going to be someone else, whoever it might be, I think whoever it might be is going to be much more susceptible and res responsive to passing cannabis, to legalizing, because I think that's what you know most of the other candidates want to do. They're going to go ahead. And I actually, in the debates, I hope we start hearing, are you going to legalize? Can we see a raise of hands? And I want to see who's going to say, because I think there's a bunch that are ready to do it. Congress is ready to do it. They've already had the bills in place. They just got to put them up for vote. And maybe they don't have to wait for, the you know, they don't have to take any more lobbying money from Big Pharma to do that and make it happen. But I appreciate you explaining the fact that as we far have seen know now, we see that there's the benefits for Schedule 3 from a financial standpoint, but medically, it doesn't make much of a difference. And I appreciate you letting me know about that. And hopefully there's always more we can find out that we can learn about this. And if the DSCR has anything in terms of any statements, hopefully we'll see down the line. Uh, you're really just a commentary of what collectively what the doctors are saying about this. I'd love to go and see that as well down the line as well. That's another question I was going to ask now. In terms of doctors, are there pharmacists or any other medical professionals that can also join the Doctors for Cannabis Regulation? Or is it just doctors that have been uh, certified that have actually gone through and graduated and um, they have their credentials? Uh, great question. We, we accept all kinds of healthcare professionals. We accept uh, researchers with PhDs. We have nurses who are actually spokespeople for Doctors for Cannabis Regulation. We've had a pharmacist on our board, and many of our experts are from various ancillary medical fields, not MDs themselves. But I think what makes it so valuable for doctors, uh, for physicians to speak out on this issue, is the degree of trust that Americans, <laughs> rightly or wrongly, have for their physicians. and. If doctors are saying that the law is wrong, it's something that politicians can't ignore. And both politicians and physicians, if you notice, have really been behind the public uh, on evolving ideas about legalization. And I think that the lesson from Doctors for Cannabis regulation that can be applied widely is that you won't necessarily convince a politician or a physician that cannabis regulation is superior to prohibition. But what we, you will do with the evidence being on your side and, and being on the right side of history is to neutralize that opposition. So 
there are physicians who were vehemently opposed to what we were doing. And a lot of those people, they haven't agreed with us, but they have stopped arguing against us because they know that the evidence is against them. And it's more a matter of bringing out more allies within the government and within the medical associations. And of course, it's mostly younger physicians and legislators who have been in favor of reform. As time goes on, you're going to see that wave continue to build, uh, fortunately buoyed by the public sentiment that is very much pro-legalization. And that is how that's the reason that many of us regard change and legalization and the regulation of cannabis as being an inevitability. Right. I love this conversation and I hope we're going to continue this because there was a lot of ground covered here. And I think what you're doing right now with the product symbol and having that put in place, the discussion we have in terms of just getting, you know, the awareness and getting states and getting, you know, various people on board with what's going on. It's imperative that the doctors and medical professionals that make up the doctors for cannabis regu regulation have come together. I think it's a very important aspect of what's going on with the cannabis industry. And Dr. Nathan, I really appreciate you building this group and having it. It's been almost a decade now or over a decade being put this together. Thank you again for that. Again, website is dfcr.org. And for those that want to go ahead and learn more, or if there are those doctors, pharmacists, nurses, medical professionals that want to go ahead and join the collective, what should they do? They can simply go on dfcr.org and you'll see that there is a join, donate. Uh, there are tabs for joining, donating, and uh, you can go there. You can make a donation to help support our work. We actually work on a very small budget. You would think a bunch of, a bunch of physicians would be you know, funding a, a nonprofit to the nth degree, but I'll tell you that physicians like me are doing this as a labor of love. We're not doing it because uh, we're flush with cash. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do. Wonderful. DFCR.org, Dr. David Nathan again, the uh, founder, past president, current board member, Doctors for Cannabis Regulation. Thank you for taking time out. Thank you so much. All right, and thank you listeners. I hope you got a lot of this conversation. We'll be back with another Blood Business next week, and we'll talk to you next time. Opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.